Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, episode 18. It's September 4th, baby. We got another great show for you dudes this week. For our first topic, why are the ultra wealthy making their own exclusive cities? <laughs> Keep on knocking, but you can't come in. <laughs> for our second topic this week, 3M was just popped with a $6 billion lawsuit for providing faulty earplugs to our military. And for our final topic this week, are you dudes going tailgating this year? You know I am. In our last segment, Anthony and I share the top 10 tailgating experiences. And stick around for the second half of our show as Cameron and I had a great conversation with retired Army General Joe Ramirez Jr. But before we throw this batch in the oven, Anthony, Hit him with that great DWD track, my dude. Let's get it. Two, one. Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, where we dive into the things that matter most to men, like sports, business, and mental conditioning. But we don't stop there. We also incorporate health topics because being a well-rounded dude means taking care of yourself. We're your hosts, Anthony and Cameron, and we're excited to bring you this show where we discuss hot topics and interview experts in their field, real dudes just like you. So sit back, grab a donut and maybe some coffee, and join us in the bakery. Dudes, for our first topic this week, last week the Flannery Associates Group was found buying up 55000 thousand acres of North Californian land. Now, this project has been spearheaded by Jan Sramick. Hope I'm saying that right. He's a 36-year-old former trader that used to work for Goldman Sachs. He's getting a bunch of ultra-rich and mega-wealthy people together to buy up this huge land so that they can have this utopian elite city. This group includes the likes of the wife of Steve Jobs, Mark Andreessen of the A16Z Venture Capitalist Group, and Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, and much, much more mega-rich from the Silicon Valley area. So what it looks like to me is that we've got a group of people that just want to be left alone, away from us commoners and us peasants down here that don't have, you know, nine-plus figures in our bank account. I guess we're just not good enough, man. They got to put up a wall around themselves. Well, you know, they've been saying build that wall. So, you know, maybe they knew what they were really talking about all along. It didn't have anything to do with the other borders. It was really us. Yeah. It wasn't about people from a different country. It's just that they wanted to be in a group of their of their own, man. Right. But this isn't the first time that this has happened, right? I mean, th- this is kind of becoming a, a common thing, I feel like. Yeah, you're absolutely right, dude. Just recently, last month, the Middle East uh, has started a project. It's a 105-mile-long city that will snake through the Saudi desert. It's going to be 200 meters wide, which is roughly 220 yards, and it will rise 500 meters above sea level, which is higher than the Empire State Building, and residents will be able to run errands within five a five-minute walk. Furthermore, man, there will be no cars or roads. High-speed rail will be able to carry people from end to end in 20 minutes, it's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars to build. Yeah, I think I saw that this was actually going to be a trillion dollar city. This project is backed by the 
the royal family Saud, or who controls the country Saudi Arabia, their wealth is assumed to be between $1.4 trillion and $2 trillion. So when you think of, man, do they have the resources to build this trillion dollar city? Say they probably do, man. But the coolest thing that I found about this city, man, was that it, it's made of mirrors, right? I mean, I think it's uh, all on the outside. is supposed to like gain all of its energy from the mirrors that it's created with. Right. It's It's going to be a tall, narrow strip of a city more than 105 miles long, teeming with 9 million residents and running entirely on renewable energy. They call it the Giga Project, which is going to be crazy to see. Um, and I believe they've already begun you know, construction on that, and it should be uh, ready by 2030. So imagine that, dude. That's seven years away. I mean, it'll be here before you know it. I feel like seven years is a lofty goal. You know, I've, I feel like I've watched projects inside of Brian Claude Station take way longer than to, to build an exit off exit ramp off of a highway. True, but maybe these dudes got it on fast track. I, you know, that'd be cool to see. You know, if you see all the mock-ups of this city, it looks like it'd be a pretty cool little spectacle to go see. But and here again, it's like, why are we getting to the point where we're just building ways to keep other people out? We just talked about this a couple episodes ago with the Maui wildfires. And that there's speculation with the Maui elites. Obviously, you dudes told us in our poll that you think the elites are behind it. If they're doing the same thing all over the place, when are we going to raise a red flag on this? Is this something that we should, you know, whistleblow on? I mean, or is it anything that's, you know, not worth it? I mean, I don't, I don't know. This is the conspiracy theorist in me, I guess. You know, just like, what's the point behind all this? I really do feel this could be, you know, what there's what they said they're trying to eliminate the middle class. Because now you're going to have, it's just like a nice neighborhood, right? Like, think about this. It would be the, the nicest neighborhood in the world in several continents. You can either afford to live there or you don't live there. And, you know, what does that do for classes, right? It's a good separation of class, I think. Absolutely. And kind of going back to the whole Saudi thing, think there was a whole purpose behind that too. Obviously they, they live in a very hot desert and I think that there was a completely different reasoning behind why they wanted to create that. Right. Yeah. You know, they, uh, this guy wrote, uh, he's never seen something more dystopian. So I get it, man. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, those guys have their reasons for building the way they want to. And so are the ones here and so are the ones in Maui. Dudes, what do you guys think about all this? We got some elite cities going up where only the elite will be allowed to go. Then you've got this trillion dollar city in Saudi Arabia. Do you think that there's some movements going on behind the scene? Hit us in our show notes. We got a link in there where you can go to our website, comment on today's show. You can also request a shout out there, or you can email us info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes, for our second topic this week, last Tuesday, 3M and former military service members reached a settlement agreement for over $6 billion. This is an historic event because what they're complaining of is that over 240,000 service members over the course of decades have had an issue with earplugs that were supplied by 3M. The result of it? was hearing loss. 
And this deal actually comes after a failed attempt earlier this year to secure a deal, which has now moved this case into becoming the largest tort litigation in the U.S. history. It's now moving into bankruptcy court in the hopes of limiting the liability to 3M. Anthony, crazy. Man, that's just nuts. It, and if you really look at this, um, what I'm looking at here is out of those 240,000 people expected to be eligible for the settlement, if less than 98% of the eligible claimants decide to take part, 3M can walk away from it. So you have to have 98% participation for this to do to go through and to be valid. We're kind of picking this apart. Obviously, $6 billion is great. But what Anthony and I are trying to do is dive in deep in, into this payout and to see, you know, what's actually really in it. And what we found is an actually $1 billion of the $6 billion that will be paid out is only coming in the form of stock options. What's even more interesting about it, this was definitely a strategic move on 3M's part because whenever this deal was announced on Tuesday, by the end of that day, their shares are up by 2%. Not a large jump. Is obviously going to boost the price because there's going to be more buy-in into their stock. And so this just feels a little too calculated to me, right? Yeah, absolutely. Some analysts estimate that the company's potential liability from the earplug litigation has been as high as $10 billion. So you're cutting $4 billion off of that and you're still you're going to do what you will with those guys and what, what is their uh, incentive to get their money? You got to join... Obviously, there, there feels like there's a lot of barriers to entry here and to getting this this job done and and all that. I really hope that the plaintiffs here can can figure out a way to uh, maneuver this and get getting to that 98%. Looks like this payout will be starting this year if they can get to that 98% buy-in or the 98% sign-up. And they'll start paying out this year all the way through 2029. So if you know anybody that has had issues with earplugs while they were in service, uh, go take a look at this this class action lawsuit. You might be entitled to some gains from from all this. It's um, you know it's a really unfortunate thing that we're really having to fight to take care of and really to support our service members that are putting their lives on the line for us every single day, man. I we could be doing more instead of trying to make this a, such a challenging process just to get what is in my mind um, what they deserve to be compensated, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. And a bankruptcy judge in in June dismissed the bankruptcy, finding that, you know, they were, there wasn't enough financial distress to justify this. So imagine just losing your hearing. Imagine being out there serving your country, doing what you got to do, and you can't hear when you get back. And then that's just a part of being in your service because you volunteered to go do it. And this settlement actually is not the first time that this has even happened. Like, actually, of as of this year with 3M, actually, this is on the heels of another lawsuit that 3M has where they just settled for $10 billion with a host of U.S. public water systems to resolve claims of water pollution with substances of, I'm going to try to say this correctly, polyfluoroalkali substances, or PFAs, which are considered forever chemicals. Right? I don't know if you guys have caught any of that on on the news here lately, but you know some of the products that 3M put out have apparently you know they make their way into the water system, they make their way out in the ocean, it finds its way into you know into our water, and apparently these things do not degrade. 
So they, they are forever in our water system. I think if I did this correctly, man, I can't even do enough math on this phone because six billion doesn't even come up on the phone. <laughs> Too many zeros. <laughs> right, dude. You're getting roughly 25000 man. I, so $25,000 for um, each person that signs up if we can get to 98%. Yeah. If someone is a victim of hearing loss due to military services, they may be entitled to $25,000 and it could be a recoupment of the funds that would it took to to cover the losses of, of hearing loss itself. So if you've got a friend, let them know about this and get them to the show and we'd be happy to put a link in, the, in our show notes for anybody to find the information that you need to start the, the claims process. So make sure you find that in our show notes. You can also find a link to comment on this segment too as well. Or if you wanted to just email us, you can do that at info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes, for our final topic this week, it's very evident that football season is upon us. Obviously, last week we had college football kickoff. We also had a week prior to it. We're going to call that maybe week zero. We had Navy and Notre Dame play in Ireland. But last weekend was everybody is back at it, and there were some really exciting games this past weekend. Coach Deion Sanders, or Primetime, had his debut with Colorado University, and getting that first game against 17th-ranked TCU, that was a great game to watch, and I'm really excited to see what Deion is going to be doing at the University of Colorado. Another notable mention Oregon put up 81 points against Portland State. Never heard of Portland State, but putting up 81 points is always a big feat. And I know everybody's excited about that, but we also have seen some documentaries get here released here recently, haven't we? You know, the the Untold Documentary Series. You have uh, the Swamp Kings, right? The the four-episode series about the Florida Gators and, and their run at the national titles under Urban Meyer. And he had the Johnny Football documentary. You're right, man. It's like almost, it was actually probably strategically planned, I feel like. You know, you're getting ready for the football season. You're having college football coming up first. So what other best way to, to kick that off with uh, some college football energy, man? Right, dude. You got the, uh, what is just as important as the game, watching your favorite team go to battle against your opponent on the other side, what's equally as important is the tailgating. Also known as the pregame. And the postgame, too. You know you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you got to put your sorrows away if you didn't end up the way that you liked it. Or it's the celebration after the game, right? It could also be the game. You might not even go into the game. You might just go to the venue to uh, pregame, watch the game and postgame. Hear, hear on that, man. I know that I've done that a lot of times. You know, growing up in a college town, we got to see a lot of our favorite uh, games and watching that uh, younger as an older guy. It's not really my style to go to the game, man. So I like to have a proper time with the tailgating. So what Anthony and I did, so what Anthony and I did is we found the top 10 sites for this year's, and not just pertaining to football, but just sports in general. We're the top 10 atmospheres for tailgating. So coming in at 10, we have the Buffalo Bills. So we got Buffalo, New York, 
topping it out at, at number 10. I can see that. I can see Buffalo, New York being a good time. Bill's Mafia, bro. I don't know if you've seen how crazy they get out there. Somebody's jumping off of a car and breaking the, t- <laughs> breaking the table every time. So There's always a crazy TikTok video going around about a Bill's fan throwing something or th- flipping over a car or something like that. Yeah, so I can subscribe to, to the Bills being number 10. At number nine, we got Auburn. Now, being in the SEC uh, and playing Auburn every year and have been to Auburn, Auburn's a good time. Okay, I'll give Auburn, Alabama, uh, it's a good time. But I don't know that it belongs in the top 10. No offense to anybody that likes Auburn University. You know, you guys have, have given my team some heck over the years, so respect in that aspect. But I don't know that Auburn, or I don't know that you guys take the a top 10 cake when it comes to tailgating. But I digress from that. Number eight, we got the Milwaukee Brewers. Hmm. But going to number seven, we got LSU. And now I will give it to LSU. Baton Rouge, the red stick, is a pretty live environment, man. They definitely deserve a, a number seven spot. Number six, we got the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, that's probably coming off because these dudes are winning Super Bowls right now. And I would suspect that this fan base is probably getting behind their Super Bowl champions here, right? Uh, number five, Tennessee. They got one of the biggest stadiums in college football. So, and they're, they're a storied program. So, yeah, I can definitely subscribe to that. Chicago Cubs. Chicago's a big city. A lot of people in, in Chicago are pretty passionate about their sports. Chicago, you know what I'm saying? I, I tell you, man. The Bears. And I can vouch for the uh, Chicago Cubs. Um, we went to a game one time in the summer. It was right before school started. A great fan base. Great food, the whole environment. I mean, we didn't tailgate, but just everything outside of the venue going into the game, we had a lot of fun. We enjoyed the crowd there. We were Astros fans, but we were still there for the Cubs. We weren't. They weren't even playing that the, the Astros, but it was a great environment. And then there was an after party at a club across the street hey. after that, and it was just fun to be around, man. So I, I give them that. I'll go ahead. All right, yeah. I can see that, man. You know, I bet, I mean, Chicago's a good time, so I, I bet they show out for that, man. So rounding out at the top three here, we got Washington University. That one's kind of a, a bit of a surpriser to me. I don't know much about that. They're a team that's in the Pac-12. Pac-4 now. <laughs> They're only the Pac-2. You've only got Oregon State and Washington State left over there. Stanford and Cal left for the ACC last week. But um, I don't know. I don't have enough evidence to to say yes or no on number three on that. But so we'll move on. The Packers of Green Bay. <laughs> they are uh, number two. You know, the Packers fan base, they're a pretty, they're a pretty passionate fan base, man. You got to think about it. The uh, the trophy, NFL trophy, is named after uh, Vince Lombardi. So I'll give it to him. It- yeah, absolutely. Des caught the ball. But, you know, we'll, we'll let him have the number two tailgating spot. And then rounding off the top at number one, is Ole Miss, the Grove. And that is a good time, my friend. And this list was brought to you by supertailgate.com. I think they did a pretty decent job on this, man. I, I don't know about a couple of those. There's a couple of those on there that I don't know that uh, I would have any really good say on. A couple of those I definitely disagree with. But I would say probably 7 out of 10 on these I, I could definitely get behind I agree. You know, trust the experts, man. They published this, so they probably know what they what they're talking about, and they've probably been there. You know, so right, exactly. But dudes, we'd love to hear from you about your tailgating experiences and what you think makes a really good tailgate. 
You can tell us about your stories or comment on today's show in the link in our show notes that'll take you to our website where you can request a shout out or you can talk about this topic. You can do the same thing if you want to email us, info at donutswithdudes.com. We'll return to the show in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. Well, dudes, in the bakery with Anthony and I today is our esteemed guest, Brigadier General Joe Ramirez Jr. General Ramirez is a native of Houston, Texas, and is a graduate of Texas A&M University. He also holds master's degrees from Webster University and the United States Army War College. He was the Deputy Chief of Staff for the United States Central Command during Operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom and was the Deputy Division Commander for the 2nd Infantry Division in the Republic of Korea. He is currently the Vice President for Student Affairs at Texas A&M, but previously served as their 45th Commandant of Cadets, which is the largest corps of cadets outside of the three major military academies. He holds numerous military awards, including the Distinguished Service Medal, the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and many, many, many more. So dudes, help me in welcoming General Joe Ramirez to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. Great, man. So welcome to the bakery. Yeah. Always love donuts with dudes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry we don't have donuts for you today, man, but... uh, We'll have to send you a, uh, a dozen to your office to share with everybody. I'm in. Count sure. me in. All right. Well, General, uh, you know, we definitely want to unpack your career today because I, I think it's a it's a really cool one to unpack. And we've had the opportunity to listen to you speak and, and just listen to some of the cool things that you've done in your life. But before we do that, can we talk about the young buck, Joe, and what your upbringing was like. Can you share some of that with us? Sure. Um, I grew up in Houston. Uh, my dad was a military veteran, army veteran, former prisoner of war. Um, my mother had grown up on a farm in a, in a small town called Moulton, Texas, near Shiner. Um, and she quit school in the eighth grade to go work on the farm. And my, my parents met in Houston and married. And so I, you know, my dad, when he retired from the, from the military in 1971, moved back to Houston in the neighborhood he grew up in, a place called Magnolia Park, uh, all Hispanic neighborhood. Um, and so that's pretty much where I grew up. Um, and inner city neighborhood, inner city schools, uh, but a very tight community. Um, pretty much everybody knew everybody in that neighborhood, a lot of family there. And, uh, so I, I, you know, as far as upbringing, I, I consider myself blessed. I had a very good, good childhood. Uh, my, my parents uh, were both there present and, uh, looked out for all of us. And my parents' dream for all of us was to go to college. Neither one of my parents had gone to college, and they wanted they wanted their kids to go to college. There were four of us. I was the oldest of four. Um, and to be honest with you, when I was in high school, I never even thought about college. I wasn't going to be, I wasn't my thing. I, I just, you know, I, I really seriously was thinking about joining the Marine Corps, enlisting in the Marine Corps. Um, and I happened to be in downtown Houston on a Saturday morning. And I, I still, to this day, do not remember why I was down there, but I was down there, and and those are the days when Texas A&M played Rice and the Corps cadets would march into downtown Houston. And I happened to be down there when the Corps marched in. And I saw the Corps and I, I played alto sax. Um, and I saw the band come by and I was just mesmerized. I was just blown away. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know who they were. 
But, you know, I told myself at that moment, I want to be a part of that, you know. And so I I went to my high school counselor and said I wanted to go to college. And, and my high school counselor honestly did, you know, laughed at me. He said, hey, you're not college material. And I said, no, I really want to go to college. I want to go to Texas A&M University and I want to be in their band. And he literally tried hard to convince me to go to the University of Texas. Oh, huh. he told me, and this is literally what he told me, a man I admired greatly said Mexicans don't go to Texas A&M, Mexicans go to the University of Texas. And uh, I said, well, I really want to go to Texas A&M. And so thankfully the academic standards were not nearly as high back then as they are today. <laughs> um, and I applied to come to A&M and, and look, fortunately was accepted. Um, and I, the only reason I came to A&M was I wanted to be in the band. I wanted to be in the, in the Aggie band. Um, I didn't know anything about the school, the core, uh, the curriculum. I didn't know anything about, it, about its history, knew nothing about it. Um, so came to A&M, joined the band. Um, it wasn't long after that. I thought I've made a huge mistake because <laughs> that was a really tough indoctrination and sure. into life at Texas A&M University, something I just was not prepared for. Uh, but like anything else, you learn to adapt. And as much as I would have liked to have quit, my father would never allow me to quit. Um, I was the first member of our family ever to go to college and and my dad was hard set on, no, you've got to do this. You've got to finish this. And so thankfully, um, he encouraged me to stay, and I did. And uh, went four years through the Aggie Band. Uh, my senior year, I commanded one of the companies in the band. I was lucky enough to get selected to do that. Um, and quite frankly, the only reason I joined the Army was at the end of my sophomore year, the Army ROTC program offered me a two-year scholarship, and I needed the money. I mean, my family was working hard to put me through school. It costs a lot of money. And and we, quite frankly, couldn't afford it. And so I asked them, I said, well, what does this cover? What does this scholarship cover? And they said, it covers everything but room and board. Tuition, books, fees, covers everything except room and board. And I said, I'll, I'll do it. It saves my parents a lot of money. I'll do it. And they told me then, they said, well, you'll the Army four years after you graduate. You need to understand that you've got a four-year commitment. I said, that's fine. I'll do four years. But if it eases the burden on my family to pay for my college, I'll do it. I'll sign mm -hmm. for at 20 years old, I signed on the dotted line, and that was a decision I made that day that changed my life forever. And I didn't realize it at the time, obviously, but it, it changed my life. So I um, graduated from Texas A&M in 1979, uh, commissioned in the Army, the, uh, graduated in the morning, commissioned that afternoon, and flew out for beautiful Fort Sill, Oklahoma that evening, and uh, thought I was going to do four years in the Army and get out, and wound up staying for 31 man, no breaks. Uh, not not much of a break at all, <laughs> you know? So, uh, and it was funny because, you know, my order said they had to report the next day, which was a Sunday. You know, I graduated on a Saturday and the next day was Sunday. So literally I made all my arrangements and I flew out, got to Fort Sill. I went to report in and there's a young officer sitting at the desk and I walk in, he goes, what are you doing here? I said, well, my orders say I'm supposed to report. He goes, it's Sunday. So my orders say I'm supposed to report today. He goes, we're not open. Oh, he said. <laughs> he said, "Go back to the, go back to the, the the bachelor officers' quarters. Go back to the BOQ, and come back tomorrow. We're not open today." And I'm like, "Well, you know, I my I flew out last night because my order said to report today by noon." Yeah, you know, I showed up in my class A uniform, all set to report. And he goes, "Sorry, man, we're not open." <laughs> I said, "I partied last yeah. night. My class could have been partying with my buddies, you know." <laughs> So, but that was kind of how, how I got introduced to the Army. But yeah, that's kind of like, kind of me in a nutshell, growing up in, in inner city Houston. And my dad's home is still there. Um, my stepmother lives in it now, but it's still home for me. It's still where I go 
to kind of get grounded. I'm reminded of where I grew up and, and the fact that uh, no matter what position I hold or, 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 or what esteem I may gain over my career, I go back home and it reminds me that, you know, you're just a kid from the inner city that got a lot of lucky breaks along the way and had a lot of people looking out for him to get him where he is today. I admire that humility, man. Mm. I truly admire that. hundred percent. Got to have it. You know, you got to have it. There's a lot of people that get wrapped up in themselves. And like I said, uh, every time I go home, especially with my family, they remind me, hey, we, <laughs> right. we remember you when. <laughs> hey, don't get too cocky. <laughs> Mexicans are good at doing that. Yeah, we, we are. We are. <laughs> oh, man. <dude. laughs> well, General, I, I'd like to jump into some experiences uh, that you've had. I know I've heard you speak at several events and, you know, um, I just want to know if, if if you could maybe share a time in your life where you had um, to use both diplomatic finesse and uh, military strategy to get the job done. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. As I became senior in rank, the more you realize you've got to get away from the tactical and start thinking strategically. And probably when I became a colonel and I became the deputy chief of staff at U.S. Central Command when we were fighting two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I got a chance to watch firsthand the four-star commander who was overseeing those fights, a guy by the name of General John Abizade, an incredible leader. Um, I started to learn that there's, there is this finesse, this art of diplomacy that you've got to employ along with being a military leader, along with employing your military strategy. And especially when you're dealing with coalition partners. And I worked a lot with coalition partners when I was in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, Qatar, all throughout the Middle East, um, we were trying to build a coalition of partners to help us in those fights. And so I dealt a lot with our coalition partners there. And in that, you've really got to employ diplomacy and military strategy. They both go hand in hand. Um, as I got senior in rank, as I became a general officer, um, my last job, I did strategy plans and policy for U.S. European Command. And I dealt a lot predominantly in Eastern Europe, with a lot of the Eastern European countries, Ukraine, Georgia, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. I did a lot of work in these Eastern European countries. And part of that effort was to try to encourage them to provide forces to support our efforts in Afghanistan. We were trying to, again, build our coalition there. And so once again, every time I went into those countries, my first stop was the U.S. Embassy. And I would work with these career diplomats on how we would go about trying to con convince these countries to aid our efforts in Afghanistan. And that's where I really learned just how important diplomacy is. We military guys, we tend to be, you know, kill the mosquito with a sledgehammer <laughs> kind of guys. We're very direct, you know, you're ver we're very matter of fact. And there is a subtle art to diplomacy that I learned from watching some of our diplomats who are incredible at what they do. I have great respect, for example, for the Bush School and what they do in teaching our young people um, what it means to interface with other countries in diplomacy and policy um, and how important it is to our to the future of our nation. Um, and so learning that uh, allowed me to work very, very closely with a lot of our coalition partners. You know, Ukraine and Georgia were two that I spent a lot of time in just talking to some of their military leaders and some of their political leaders on aiding our efforts in Afghanistan. Some did, some did not. You know, uh, Ukraine flat out said no. And when I asked, how their, ironic, well, when I asked their minister of defense, you know, who was a political leader, I said, well, can you tell me why you wouldn't want to, uh, to contribute to the efforts in Afghanistan? 
And he looked at me, he goes, General, when you came in today, did you come along the big avenue that led up to this building? You know, very similar to Washington, D.C., big ornate streets. I said, yes, sir, I did. He goes, did you see the monuments along the way? I said, yes, I did. He goes, did you see the one with the eternal flame? I said, I did. He goes, do you know what that's dedicated to? I said, no, I, I have no idea. He goes, that eternal flame is dedicated to the 3,500 sons of Ukraine who died in Afghanistan when we were part of the Soviet Union in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And he said, we will never go back to Afghanistan. And we lost 3,500 of our sons there in the 80s. And of course that, <laughs> I guess, okay, now I understand. Now I get it. Now I understand why um, you don't want to go back. And, and quite frankly, he also looked at me and said, and if you were smart, you would get out of Afghanistan today because you will never win there. And how prophetic. He was right. He was right. Yeah. So I, that in those instances, I learned very quickly that you've got to employ the art of diplomacy along with military strategy when you're trying to deal with coalition partners in a lot of ways. Interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, y you know, it, it, it's so interesting because I, I can imagine um, going through so much of that. You know, you're talking about uh, PTSD, things like that, and these these Ukrainians didn't want to go, but obviously there's a really good reason behind it, right? I mean, they they've got some some baggage that comes along with fighting in in Afghanistan, and so it kind of leads me to my, our next question: is you know, there's a lot of service members that can come out of the military, and there's just they struggle with some things like PTSD, right? Um, I, I'm curious. Two things, I guess. What was your experience like once you got discharged and, and decommissioned from the military? And how do you perceive the way that our country supports our veterans? I mean, we're on the hills of 3M on a historic uh, lawsuit with earplugs, right? I think it's a $6 billion class action lawsuit. Great thing happening for our service members. But I'm just curious of your opinion on all that. Yeah, I, I let me answer the first first question in two parts. Number one, um, there is a significant transition that most people don't understand when a soldier, sailor, airman, and marine who's been deployed in a combat zone has to make when they leave that combat zone and within 24 hours they're sitting in their living room mm. with their family. That is not an easy transition to make. Mm. Um, when you think about what all these young men and women are doing and seeing on a daily basis on the fact that they rely heavily on each other. I mean, there truly is a bond that's formed during those experiences that is unlike any other. And to leave that, and literally within 24 hours, you're back home. Um, there's got to be a transition process that takes place and all that. Um, my very first deployment, I was, I was a commander. I was commanding a battalion, and we had deployed to northern Kuwait, and we were there for 10 months. Mm -hmm. And coming back, we went through this transition training because they were trying to tell everybody it's, it's going to be different. You know, you're no longer deployed to a combat zone. Now you're back home. You're with family. You're going to be back into the routine of, you know, dealing with children, dealing with pets, dealing with school, dealing with, you know, whatever, paying bills, um, the things that you have not had to worry about for the entire time you've been deployed. And now you're back home and you're dealing with all these things. And oh, by the way, things have changed since you've been gone. Your family's had to adapt to the fact that you're not here. And I thought, well, I'm the commander. I, I don't have to deal with this. You know, this is not for me. This is for others, but I don't need it. Oh, no, I need it just as much as anybody else. That was a tough transition 
to go from this 24-7 environment of literally living on adrenaline and all of a sudden you're back home and you're sitting with your family and things have changed. You know, things have changed. Your family has changed. Your kids have changed. Your wife has changed. And it was a difficult, far more difficult than what I thought it was going to be. Um, so that's, you know, that transition for most service members coming out of a combat zone and all of a sudden finding themselves, you know, just sitting in their living room with their family or, or being back home and trying to make that shift mentally is very, very difficult. It's not as easy as most people think. I was, I was teaching a class on leadership to a bunch of athletes, to a bunch of football players, and they were saying, well, what makes it so hard? I said, well, let me give you an analogy that maybe you'll understand. Imagine you've just played a seven-overtime football game, and you won, and you won. And you're on this emotional high, this adrenaline high, and it's, you know, one o'clock in the morning because it's taken all night to win this game. But now it's one in the morning, you're on this emotional high, and, you, and you're, just, you're just feeling euphoric over this victory. But you've got a chemistry exam at eight o'clock in the morning. And even worse, it's a chemistry final exam that you're going to have to take at 8 o'clock in the morning. Now, how do you make that transition from this emotional euphoric high that you're on, and all of a sudden i got to focus my efforts on getting ready for this chemical final, this chemistry final exam? You know, imagine having to make that shift, you know, like that, on a dime. You know, it's not easy to do. And you're taking men and women who have literally come off the battlefield, and now you're, you're putting them in this environment where, Everything's quote unquote normal. Um, that is not an easy shift to make for a lot of our servicemen. It's hard. It is a tough transition to make. And we've got to figure out a way to do that better. And I know the military is. I'm, this is not casting stones at anybody. The military is working hard to try to work on this transition phase of how we do that better um, for the service member and for the service member's families. So that's one. Transition out of the military can be very, very difficult as well. Because you're leaving, for a lot of people, you're leaving, you know, a life that you've known for four years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 31 years. And that's not easy either, leaving that life. And there's a, there's a unique bond that you build in the military that, again, is kind of unlike anything else you could imagine. Um, there are men and women that understand you, that speak your language, um, that, that live the same life you lead, um, that train with you, work with you, you know, uh, deploy with you, grieve with you. Um, they understand you. And, you know, since 9-11, less than 1% of the American population has served in our military. So the vast majority of American people don't understand what our military service members do and what they experience. Only those that have served can understand that experience. Um, just recently, I had, uh, I had a veteran at A&M. He works at A&M contacted me and he said, hey, sir, would you mind having lunch with me? I said, sure. So we went to the university club on the campus and there were four, four of them showed up, four, four veterans and two, two army, one Marine, one Air Force, and myself. And for two hours, we just sat there and talked about our time in the military, shared stories, talked about deployments, but we just talked about our life in the military uh, because we understood each other. You know, we'd all been there, done that. We'd all chewed some of the same dirt downrange. <clears throat> and afterwards, one of them came up and he goes, you know, sir, I never talk about this with anybody. I never talk like this with anybody because nobody else understands. Only guys like you guys 
understand me and what it means to go through what we've been through. He goes, I wish we could do this on a bigger scale. And I said, you know, I think I can help fix that. And so on 9 September for the Miami game, we're holding a, we're hosting a veterans tailgate party in Aggie Park uh, for the Miami game. We're going to have a big screen TV there to show the game. Um, I'm hosting it. I'm providing barbecue and, and non-alcoholic beverages. Um, I'm going to have Reveille there. I'm going to have uh, uh, the Aggie band show up to play, play some music. But it's just a chance to bring veterans together who are either students, staff, or faculty at A&M Come over, have some barbecue, you know, and watch the game with us, and get a chance to meet your fellow veterans at A&M and get a chance to talk to each other and, and maybe share some, some stories about places you've been together and, and, and share that common ground that we all share together as veterans. Um, that all came about over, over lunch with some veterans talking about how you know, sometimes you need that outlet. You need somebody to be able to talk to about stuff like that. Somebody that understands you, that truly gets it. On the second part of your question on PTSD, that's a problem we're going to have for a lot of years. Mm. You know, we have a lot of young people coming back with some serious trauma. I've seen it firsthand. My son deployed three times, um, and he had some issues coming back from his last deployment to Afghanistan. Mm. Couldn't sleep. And I kept telling him, get help, get help. You know, and he was a young officer. And that's, you know, for young officers, there was a stigma associated with that that I hope that they've done away with now in the military. Uh, but uh, it's a difficult transition, and I think we're going to be dealing with this PTSD problem for years and years and years to come because many of our young people coming back, they were young. You know, the average age, 19, 20 years old, deployed downrange, um, and what they had to do and what they had to see are the kinds of things that 18, 19, 20-year-olds should not be seeing or doing. Yeah. And yet here they were immersed in it 24-7, and you come back, and you're not fully prepared to deal with that. You know, it, it, it haunts you. It stays with you. Um, you know, we lose veterans every day to suicide. You know, it, it's it's a problem we've got to resolve and, and fix. And do I think we're doing enough? No, I don't. I, you know, and I, I will tell anybody that. I don't think we're doing enough. There's a lot more we need to be doing for our veterans to show them that we care and to show them that we can provide them the services they need to be able to cope with some of the deals, some of the stresses and some of the horrors they did, that they deal with on a daily basis. Well said. You know, um, as civilians, we don't have that that military firsthand experience, but um, a lot of times there's political issues and things like this where you hear the VA is an issue and, and there's problems with the VA. Like um, we, we see that a lot in healthcare. Right. So where do you think that that could actually be improved or, or what, what should we be doing to help these guys when they come back and yeah. You know, adjust. Well, I think I think it starts across the board. Um, it starts at the VA. I, and trust me, I, I've used the VA myself. My father, who's a veteran, I used the VA in Houston. And I will tell you, I, I have nothing but high praise for the for the VA hospital in Houston. They took great care of my father. Uh, they did phenomenal things for him, incredible care. Uh, but not every VA is the same. Um, and it's got to start with the VA because that's what they're designed to do. They're there to take care of veterans. And uh, and in my humble opinion, have not always done that well. We've had some horrible cases that have propped up in the news about the way they've treated our veterans in the past. Um, so I think it's got to start there. But I think all healthcare workers across the board have got to understand what it means when you're dealing with a veteran who's who's dealing with some unique circumstances, PTSD being one of them, um, that may not be understood by everybody in the civilian sector. Um, this is not a guy coming in because you know he he's he's having trouble sleeping. 
this is a guy coming in because he's got a traumatic brain injury or he's having nightmares about what happened to him in Afghanistan. Um, I think it, ha- it cuts across the board of all health care. Um, we don't have enough. I mean, I mean, if you look here in the Brazos Valley, how much mental health care we've got here, it's non-existent. We don't have much at all. Um, and the VA tries their might, can't fill that gap. And so we've got to find ways to improve the, not just the overall quality, but the quantity of support that we've got available for our veterans out there who deal with some pretty horrific issues. Yeah. Agreed. 100% agreed. You know, I, and on top of that, you know, we, when you do come home, you're still faced with, you talked about this a little bit, with, with different stresses, right, that are on top of these manifesting mental issues that you're that you're having to, to struggle with and like right now we're dealing with things like uh uh the the war on ukraine cyber warfare i mean the threat of china right i um if, if it's okay i'd like to invoke some of your strategic juices here um how do we united states of america stay and remain in that elite military power status and with all these things kind of manifesting in the world right now those things that i just mentioned all kinds of other stuff too as well what do we need to do as a military to not falter in our position right you know uh, one of the knocks on our military has always been we're always preparing to fight the last war <laughs> you know we always prepare to fight that last war um and in our case you know we were thinking about heavy maneuver warfare, you know, uh, high intensity combat, tanks, artillery, close air support. Um, And don't get me wrong, I think there's still a need for that today. I I firmly believe that. But one of the strengths of our military is we are quick to adapt to the situation we're in. Uh, When we went into Iraq, we went in with tanks and artillery and armored personnel carriers, close air support, attack helicopters, and quickly realized once we overthrew Saddam, that now we had a whole new situation in our hand. Now we had a counterinsurgency, uh, an insurgency we were dealing with, and we had to adapt our doctrine to figure out how to fight that fight. Because in 1979, when I came in the army, all of my instructors said, "All those books on Vietnam, throw them away, because we're never going to fight like that again. You know, we're never going to fight a war like we did in Vietnam ever again. You know, we've learned our lesson." Well, guess what? We went into Iraq and we find ourselves fighting you know, an insurgency of people mixing with the civilian population, using improvised explosive devices to fight us, uh, fighting us with snipers, fighting us in ways that were not conventional. They were unconventional. They were asymmetric. All of a sudden, we were dusting off the books from Vietnam to figure out how do you fight this kind of a fight, fighting a a guerrilla warfare kind of a fight in Iraq. How do you adapt to that? And we did. We had to adapt quickly, but we did. And we learned pretty quickly, you know, I also worked for a guy by the name of General David Petraeus, yeah. who helped develop the counterinsurgency doctrine that we began to use about 07, 08, when we, we came in with the surge. Um, and a brilliant man. I got to tell you, I learned more from watching that guy than probably anybody. Phenomenal the way uh, he went about doing this. But he brought in new doctrine to fight the fight we were fighting at the time. And it didn't involve tanks and artillery and close air support. It involved more diplomacy, um, and it, it involved more about, and, and I hate to use the phrase winning hearts and minds, but that was kind of what we were trying to do. Um, he made 
soldiers live am among the people. Mm -hmm. he, no more working among the people during the day than going back to the Ford operating base, the FOB at night. No, no, no. You're going to live with the people. You're going to be out there with them every day. They need to see you every day, know that you're invested in them and their community and the people. Um, so we're really good at adapting. And I think right now our military, our Department of Defense is looking hard at how do we keep pace with countries like China and Russia and other non-state actors out there that are leveraging not conventional. Now, I will say Russia and China are both strong conventional, uh, but what they're leveraging to great effect um, are those asymmetric uh, warfare kinds of elements mm -hmm. like AI, like cyber, like space. You know, how are we going to fight in those battle spaces? And that's what our military is looking at now. So how do we fight in these non-doctrinal spaces out there um, that we're not used to fighting in? If the Chinese and the Russians have already begun, I mean, our, our, our country gets attacked every day, um, cyber, by Russia and, and, and China. Yeah, we get attacked every day. And so being able to counteract that, being able to both, both fight the defense of that, but also fight offensively is going to be critical for us. AI is a, the Chinese are leveraging that every day. Yeah. You know, how do we get in that battle space and leverage it to help us ensure that we are not vulnerable to an attack by China using AI? Hypersonics is another one the Chinese are, are leveraging every day. Um, so these are all new uh, and emerging threats to the United States that we've got to be able to fight in that space. And we are. Uh, uh, you know, I have been retired now since 2011. So I can tell you, I, I don't know firsthand. But I do know that there are efforts underway. All the services are looking at fighting that battlefield in the future. We're not just looking backwards. We're looking forwards to what are the emerging threats and how do we fight that battle space going forward from here? And how do we develop young men and women mm. uh, to be able to fight in those spaces uh, going forward from here? Um, it, I, you know, I, I give you a great example. You know, if you look at Ukraine, look at the use of drones. Yeah. I mean, and we're not talking about huge predators or global hawks, we're talking about little off-the-shelf drones that they have weaponized that they're, they're using to great effect. You know, both the Russians and the Ukrainians are using these these drones. Um, who'd have thought, you know, 20 years ago that that would become a weapon that could be used to great effect um, on a battlefield in Eastern Europe? Um, so we've got to look at these kinds of emerging technologies and figure out how do we leverage that to great effect, you know, so that we can protect ourselves and also if we need to, go on the offensive uh, to take away threats to our to our nation and our people. Yeah. You know, I, I hate that this the war on Ukraine is happening, but if there's anything to take away from it, it's it's been really cool to kind of watch this David and Goliath fight and Ukraine just pulling, I mean, obviously we're, they're getting a lot of resources from other countries, but uh, just pulling together whatever they have. I mean, making the, what are the, the bombs out of the, the, you know, blasts and shoving, you know, just yep. lighting it on fire. I mean, whatever you got to do to make it work. It's pretty amazing to watch it. I think myself, having spent a lot of time over there, and I still have friends over there in their, in their defense department, um, like pretty much every other military expert out there, I, I said, I give it six weeks to two months and Ukraine will fall to the Russians. But we did, we made two mistakes on that one. We, those that made those predictions. Number one, we un underestimated the Ukrainian resolve to defend their homeland. And number two, we overestimated the ability of the Russian military. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, many of us failed when we looked at this. 
and the capability that the Ukrainians truly had, especially when it came to defending their homes. And number two, the lack of ability and the lack of training that the Russian military displayed when they began their invasion of Ukraine. Um, I think we all thought the Russians were this big, huge bear, this throwback to the to the Cold War, and obviously they're not. Um, the Ukrainians have have leveraged a lot of weaponry and a lot of new technology to take on the the Russians uh, pretty well. I mean, you know, we're, we're we're a year and a half into this now, and the Ukrainians are holding their own very very well. Kudos to them, man. I tip yeah. my hat to them. Yep, <laughs> yep. It's amazing what people will do when they, when it comes down to defending their own homes. I mean, they will fight to the, to the very death to pr- to protect what's theirs and what they love so dearly. Yeah, it's inspiring. Yep, yeah. it is. You know, throughout history, military leaders have often drawn inspiration from unexpected sources, maybe literature, art, or philosophy. We're curious if you have any uh, sources of inspiration that have maybe helped guide you throughout your career. And well, I'm a man of faith. I will tell you that. I am. Uh, I'm a big believer in uh, in my God, um, and, and and my father was the same way. Um, as I mentioned, my father was a prisoner of war, and in 1949, his mother gave him a religious medal um, from Mexico, and he wore it his entire life. I had never remember seeing my dad without the religious medal, and he had to hide it when he was a prisoner of war. He had to hide that medal uh, from the Chinese, uh, but when he came back, he had that medal with him. And uh, my dad died three years ago, and I wear that medal. Uh, um, I am a huge believer. I, I'm a man of faith, and that is helped guide me through a lot of the difficult times I've seen throughout my life, both professionally and personally. Um, so I draw inspiration from knowing that um, no matter what, you know, I've always got my God on my side. You know, I can always lean on Him, and trust me, I've done a lot of praying, especially when I, when I was uh, deployed. Um, I did a lot of praying. Um, knowing that he was listening to me and that he would watch out for me and watch out for my men. Um, I also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big music lover. I love music, and there's a lot of music out there that inspires me as well. Um, and I also, uh, I, yeah, if I do this thing called Thoughts While Drinking Coffee. It's on my Facebook page, and every Sunday morning I'll do this Thoughts While Drinking Coffee. I always put a quote in there, an inspirational or motivational quote. I put it on there because... I also draw inspiration from reading these quotes from other people that talk about life, about overcoming adversity, about you know dealing with difficult situations, whatever it may be. Um, so those are things that I kind of I, I, I look at that I would say are not probably the norm. But if I had to pick one thing, it would be my faith. I uh, I am strong in my faith. I always have been, and I always will be. And I you know I I consider myself a blessed man to have had the life I've led, and it's all because God has given that to me. You're here on that, man. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely admire that too as well. Um, you know, and that's that's one. Oh, I was just going to, sorry about that. You go ahead. I was just going to say from from uh, you saying your parents also, you know, preaching school, going to school, and then faith, that's something that uh, I know me and Cameron have also experienced as well through our families as well. Uh, so it's great to hear that it's work, you know, it works, and you, you're a prime example of that. And I think a lot of people um, maybe not have been exposed to that kind of thing growing up. So, yeah. you know, uh, I think it's important. I really do. I think it's important. And and people ask me, you know, you know what what motivated you to go to the college to to stay in school, you know. And and I when I'm talking to some of the young people today at A and M, especially those that are considering 
quitting. I said, you know, I remember walking across campus, you know, going to class saying, I can't fail this. There are too many people that are proud of me and that are expecting me to do this uh, because I represent a lot more than just myself here at Texas A&M now as the first member of my family ever to go to college. And uh, that was all because of my parents. My parents, I mean, they were, I mean, my dad told me, he goes, it doesn't matter what it costs, you know, we will get you through college. We will figure out a way to get you through college. I mean, it, it nothing was going to stop them from making sure that their kids got a chance to go to college. And so it was, I, th I think it's important that we continue to pass that on to our children and their children and that they understand that uh, this is important to us. It, it's important you carry on that legacy. Um, and for me, you know, it, m my faith is I pass that on to my children as well. And I always tell people that my dad taught me a long time ago, you know, it's all about if there's three things you got to love in your life. You got to love your God, got to love your family, got to love your country. Got a tattoo to my arm, you know, God, family, country. And my dad taught me that at an early age. Um, and, and I've held true to that my entire life. Love it. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's very evident that, um, from whatever it may be, whether it be General Ramirez, I think it's pretty apparent to our listeners today that wisdom is not a characteristic that you lack. And so I was hoping that you could share with our audience before we let you go, maybe a bit of advice that has stuck with you that could help the, the young or the unconfident leader that may be listening to this conversation today. The an innate thing, whether it be skills that you've fostered over your lifetime, it's very apparent that wisdom is definitely comes along with your path. It comes along with General Ramirez, and um, we really appreciate you bringing that onto our show today. But before we let you go, is there anything that you can share with the young leader, the the inconfident, unconfident leader? that just is unsure of themselves, is there any good advice that you've learned throughout your life that you can just take and it can be almost generalized to almost anybody and that could just help bring some leadership out, about it, out of anybody else? That was a terrible question, but I think you get where I'm getting at on this. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I, well, I could spend hours talking about, you know, uh, things I wish I'd known back as a brand new second lieutenant coming in the Army. But I'll, let me break it down to three things that I would I would tell any young leader who's just entering into the fray um, that I would offer, given what I've learned over 45 years now of leading organizations. The first thing I would tell them is take care of your people and your people will take care of you. You know, of all the resources you're going to be given as a leader, the most precious resource you've got is your people. And if you take care of them, they will in turn take care of you. You know, and there's a lot that comes with that. But, you know, if you look out for your people, um, they'll be there for you when you need them the most. So that'd be the first thing I'd offer. The second thing I would offer is don't be afraid to make mistakes. And, you know, never stop learning and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Because, you know, it doesn't matter how far up, up the chain you rise, you know, you better be learning something every day and you can't be afraid to make mistakes. And I tell people every day, you know, I'm the vice president of student affairs at Texas A&M University. I'm a retired journal officer and I make mistakes every day, you know, because I'm not afraid to try things. I'm not afraid to, to be a little innovative and show a little initiative about things, but I make mistakes. Um, and the good thing is, is I try to learn from those mistakes. I don't repeat them. I don't make the same mistakes 
over and over and over again. And we've got to encourage our young people to not be afraid to get out there and show a little initiative, be a little innovative and try things. And if you make a mistake, okay, acknowledge I made a mistake, learn from it, and then move on. You know, you can't dwell on it. You know, you've got to move on. You, you, every mistake I've made through my throughout my, my life, I've learned from, and they've helped shape me and mold me into the leader I am today. So learn from your mistakes, but don't be afraid to make mistakes. And the third one I'm going to offer is uh, lead by example. Mm. You know, and, the, and I put this in real simple terms. Be the kind of leader you would want to follow. Okay. Am I being the leader today that I would want to follow if if I were being led by me? Um, and that's not always easy in today's world, you know. And and, and I and I talk about this when I talk about leadership, because in today's world where everybody's got a cell phone that takes photos and video, uh, you're never off the job. I mean, everybody's everybody can film. I mean, if if you can be doing the best job all day long, you know, at work. And then go out to a party that night and get stinking drunk and make a total fool of yourself. And somebody's going to capture that, either with with pictures or video. And you know, and that that totally destroys everything that you've built as a leader. Um, so this lead by example piece, I tell them, that's a twenty four seven endeavor these days. It truly is. You've got to be on and doing it right every single minute of every single day. That's what leaders do today. You live in a fishbowl. And it's just the responsibility you accept and you become a leader is you've got to lead by example. Show your people what right looks like every single minute of every single day. Um, I think those three things would help a leader get started in kind of developing as a leader as they grow and develop. I am not the same leader today that I was when I came in as a second lieutenant. I've learned a lot along the way. Um, and a lot of that was because I made mistakes and I was not afraid to make mistakes along the way and, and learn from them. Some of them were bigger than others, but still, I wasn't afraid to make mistakes. Uh, but take care of your people. Your people will take care of you. Never stop learning and don't be afraid to make mistakes and lead by example every minute of every day. I can subscribe right. to that wisdom. 100%. 100%. Well, General, I I could honestly sit here and talk to you all, the day, all day long, but I know you're a very busy man, and so... I just want to say thank you again from Anthony and I to spending some time with us today to just bestow some wisdom on us. And, and I know not, not just us, but our listeners will be better today uh, from our conversation. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And I, again, who doesn't love dudes with donuts? <laughs> just got to love that. So thanks again for the invitation and the opportunity to talk to you. Great. Yes, sir. We'll have you back soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, dudes, that's it for our show this week. We want to give a special shout out to General Joe Ramirez. Anthony and I had a great conversation unpacking his life and career. And moreover, just for bestowing such great knowledge and wisdom about leadership with us. If you're watching this show on YouTube, you're going to have to run over to Spotify or anywhere you get your podcast to go check out that interview. Dudes, there's so much great wisdom to be gained from this conversation, and we hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find the links to all of our content on our link tree at Donuts with Dudes. And now you can check out the video versions of this show on YouTube at Donuts with Dudes as well. And again, this week's shout out goes to Louise from Utah for recommending one of this week's stories. And dudes, you can always request a shout out or comment on today's show 
by going to the link in our show notes or emailing us info at donutswithdudes.com. Dudes, remember, our mission is to make men better and smarter each week. And if you get a chance, go share the show with some friends. And until next week, take care of yourself, and we'll see you in the bakery for the next batch of fresh hot topics.